Welcome, welcome. Sunday morning on Triple H 100.1 FM and you are listening to the Stay in the Loop with Lucy show. This is a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people, people in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices, <coughs> excuse me, and consequences. And regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from what these guests share, we can choose to apply the relevant aspect in our lives and in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable and loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and our mental health. This week's show on Stay in the Loop with Lucy covers Youth Week, which kicked off yesterday at Shawshocked in St. Leonard's Park. The other, um, the other things I'm going to cover in the show are some other local events in our area and an interview that I did um, a couple of years ago with a woman called Rachel Andras, a social educator and gender expert who works with both adults and youth. And the end of the show, we're also going to have an interview with Simone Eisman, who is who works as a psychologist um, for Lifeline Harbour to Hawkesbury, and she's going to be talking to us about hoarding disorder and um, the support that Lifeline has in place and a couple of new programs they've got coming up. So a fun-packed show and uh, very diverse and very different, um, affecting youth in all sorts of different ways. It's laying foundations, which is what I have named this show, or um, the consequences of perhaps not laying those foundations. And both interviews will give examples of young people and um, and older people and how they are affected by by these issues. So a little bit more about Sure Shocked. Well, it was a very long day, let me tell you, having worked at it yesterday. Um, we were there at 9. Um, a lot of the councils were there at uh, 7.30 to get started. This is a collaboration of nine councils on the North Shore. And I love that. I love the fact that nine councils came together. We had Hornsby, we had Hunters Hill, Kuringai, Lane Cove, Mosman, North Sydney, Northern Beaches, City of Ryde and Willoughby Council. Now, of course, a lot of the council um, councils are going to merge and change and there are lots of issues, obviously, in our area about now um, Kuringai having won their appeal in the court and so not, at the moment, merging with Hornsby. But it meant that a lot of, from, from an actual services point of view, what all of this does is it creates uncertainty about, you know, moving forward. What I love about the youth work network that is in the North Shore is that they actually get on with the job at hand and just do what needs to be done so that the people in the community don't suffer because of the deliberations and all of the... Uh, um, shenanigans that go on at local council and beyond and up to state. So sure shocked we had um, Luca Brassi, we had Camp Cope, The Heart A the Hard Aches, Mere Women, Morning TV, Alan Smithy, and two Battle of the Band winners, which of course is the Kuringai Council Initiative. Um, it was in St. Leonard's Park in North Sydney. It was an all-age event. Uh, alcohol and drugs free. We had the police there. We had um, things on domestic violence. We had uh, drug and alcohol um, where they wore goggles and tried to walk on, along a white line and then catch a ball. That was really very entertaining to watch. We had Mission Australia there. We had Headspace. 
I was with street work. But let me move swiftly to an amazing interview that I did with Rachel Andress, a social educator and gender expert who works with both adults and youth. In this interview, she shares with us how she has worked with them and the difference it's made in their lives, offering an opportunity for them to understand why they behave the way they do. So we might be talking about, um, you know, really angry young people. They're not angry. They're angry about something. They are, their behavior is expressing in that way. And some of the interesting concepts that are brought up here, here is... How do we meet young people for who they are? Are we always in competition with each other? And does that affect, and what effect does that have on us all? Um, is movement all the same? So when you're teaching uh, movement or dance or dancing, does it all have the same effect in our bodies? Do we find we think everyone learns in the same way and therefore do we teach in the same way? And what reflection do we offer young people in the world about what it is like to be an adult in the world. I love the way Rachel, as you will see, is offering support for teachers as well, who we underestimate um, sometimes what they're having to do in their classrooms and, uh, and having to do on, ev on an everyday basis with some people who you know, really struggle uh, to express themselves. So without further ado, Rachel Andress. Welcome, Rachel Andress. Hello, Lucy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now tell me, what country are you in? I'm in Spain, in Barcelona, located since 11 years now, almost, yes, after having lived a couple of years in Latin America. But I'm originally from Germany. Okay, so okay. very multilingual. Yes, um, yes, German, Spanish and English, they are my, my languages, yeah. Well, I'm enormously grateful because my German and Spanish are nowhere near your English. So I'm going to say right up front, great appreciation for you doing this interview in English. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So now um, you're a social educator, a gender expert and an experienced non-formal adult and youth educational trainer, um, classroom based and virtual with a, a tremendous background in the use of participatory methodology and with which focus on real life scenarios and foster knowledge sharing and building from increased body awareness that that's what i read about you and i know how you work from from other work that we have done together could you explain that um with you know a picture of what you do because it's really quite incredible how you're connecting with young people who are um, maybe the higher level of violence uh, in schools and helping them understand a different way. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was trained as a social educator and then I studied a lot the, uh, being a gender expert and working in international cooperation. And there we work a lot with what we call participatory methodology, which is kind of grassroots based um, working, kind of basically saying that the knowledge lies with the people and that it's just about bringing it out of the people. So um, I worked for, for over 10 years with um, different techniques, workshops um, to empowering different groups of people. But I came to realize that even though I could transmit 
huge amount of knowledge and experience with the people and learn. I mean, for me, it was always also a learning with the people. So it wasn't only that I was facilitating knowledge. It was like that we were getting our knowledge from everybody and sharing. It was more, yeah, a sharing that there was a missing link within this. And um, this I realized that there was no embodiment of the learned because it stayed as knowledge and it specifically came to me starting to work in schools. We were we were contacted to work in schools because of the high level of violence there, the whole aspects of bullying and um, general verbal violence, violence against teachers, bringing weapons to schools and yeah, the whole kind of misbehavior which came with this. And we did our amazing workshops, which is all about role play, like drama, um, this whole group work. And the kids, they really, on the teenagers, they really enjoyed it and it was great. But the only thing we achieved is that they learned very well the discourse. So they could really um, tell us what violence was, what it does. But staying in school and working with them and observing them, they didn't change anything in their behavior. And um, also what they communicated from their day-to-day living experiences, there were still teenagers in abusive relationships. They were still beating each other up. Um, the, the main way of communicating was criticizing each other, yelling at each other and stuff like this. So I came to understand that there was a massive need of bringing all this into the body, basically, which means they had to learn to feel what it is actually making with you to have violence as your main form of communication. So this is what brought us to look into um, the aspects of self-care, because what we realized is, or what we kind of transmitted to the young was, where is violence starting? So violence starts and in terms of how much I'm taking care of myself and how much do I self-abuse is kind of setting the foundations of how much abuse I can also accept from the outside. So we went really back to basics. So I basically threw all my participatory methodology overboard and all these beautiful workshops and said, okay, what is what we have to look at? So we started really to look at their sleeping patterns, their eating patterns, um, how they communicate with each other, how much time they spend on social media. And the main aspect we found out with them is that they basically do not sleep because they are in the social media till three o'clock in the morning. They sleep a couple of hours, have to get up to be at school at eight. So a massive part of their interruptive and aggressive behavior came from a physical need of having deprived sleeping experiences. So they did not sleep. So their body was so exhausted that they had to move constantly, consume heaps amount of sugar to stay awake. So if they would just sit and um, collaborate with the class, they literally would fall asleep. So we really started to look at 
um, from the big picture of what violence is in the in the extremes when everybody gets kind of starts to pay attention to it because it's getting so extreme so they have weapons there there's tons of violence we went to really back to basics and looked at okay where is the root cause of this violence and how can it develop in this yeah in this massive violence so we basically brought them back to their body and that's the process we are in because it's a very long process of really getting back into contact with the body and learning um, that I'm the one in charge of what's going on and that it's basically a choice how I communicate and if I make violence not. It sounds like you had to take time to um, and a certain amount of humbleness to appreciate that what you were teaching them they were understanding, they were getting, they were learning from their heads, but nothing changed in their behavior because there was a key element missing, which was the change needed to come, well, the sleep pattern. Therefore, until they changed their choices, which changed the behavior, then the consequences would always be the same. Would that be true? Yeah, it's yeah, you can it's it was not only the sleep pattern, but this was a massive kind of this was a key aspect in it where we looked at it. It was I mean there there are really different aspects we, we looked at it, but we kind of focused on this one because it was also very um important to to guide them there and to um build an understanding with them that this is important because the world we live in doesn't give importance to it. So <clears throat> if we look at the adult world, everybody's exhausted. Nobody takes care of themselves. So what they live on a daily basis is the absolute opposite. So it was about bringing the understanding back to them, So which was kind of... Um, yeah, supporting them and claiming that even though they're young and they see what is going on on the outside and it's all abuse around them and abuse, when I talk of abuse, it's um, not only the physical verbal um, abuse, it's how I am with myself and um, if even if, if I yell at somebody or somebody yells at me or disrespects me, that's the first step of abuse. That was where we were looking at to bring it really close to them that they are in charge and that they can decide differently and that it is, um, even though they are the young and they are looking up to the adult worlds and kind of copying it because that's what the young are doing, that they can take different choices. So it was very much about assuming responsibility, a word that young people really don't like. So it was also about um, bringing the joy and fun back of being responsible. And the main thing was, it was just about connection with them. So um, I experienced that before I would, I would go with different groups of people and also young people and you go in there with all the knowledge and experience you have 
And even though I was already trained and I always used this participatory methodologies and very much it is very kind of a person-centered pedagogy or how you call this or like kind of training, way of training, um, it was still not in its first step about connection. It was still in the first or the more important thing was about um, transmitting certain experience and knowledge and how to do. So when I realized I don't have to focus on the content and just getting to them what I want to transmit to them, whatever it was from the content, so talking about um, sexual violence or about bullying in school and explaining them what it is and how to behave, I realized um, it was, and this is how school is about as well. It's all about transmitting this knowledge, just like filling this empty vessels. And when I kind of stepped back and just made it about connection, that was the point when they could really start more to relate to it because it was really kind of um, looking at each student in their eyes and just really truly asking them, how are you, how are you feeling, sharing with beginning beginning of a class, sharing with each how they are, if somebody needed support, if somebody wasn't feeling well. And this opened a whole space of where they could share how they feel, how they deal with life, what's all going on. And it was a massive space needed, which they never had because the parents are busy and they don't talk to them. The the teachers are very much up with their curriculum. There is no connection. There's only performance. And then the friends, they repeat the same. Then most of social life is going on on social media. Social media is about criticizing, bullying, bringing each other down. There is no confirmation, appreciation, or no space to express what you truly feel. So it was... um, I mean, to come back, what you asked, we talked about sleep, but by talking about sleep, this was more, let's say, the the physical um, aspect of connecting to something in their daily rhythm, but it was more getting deeper into supporting them and to express what they truly feel about life and how they feel on life. And it was massive, I mean, most of specifically the the young um, men or boys they feel depressed they have anxiety they are really sad and disappointed about life they they don't know how to cope with life they they feel they have so many much pressure to be this kind of rough guys totally connected to violence and just by giving them the space um, supported them in in into yeah becoming more open to the possibility of not living in this abusive way but choosing differently fascinating if they can have the space to contemplate that they can take down some of the shields and the walls and the protection that that they've that they've put up to harden to to life and to what they're living on a daily basis, they can then recognize or start to recognize what might be termed abusive. So to get to a stage where, as you say, someone shouting at you feels abusive, but rather than it hit a wall of protection so that you just take that as normal, you actually say, gosh, that hurt. 
or you know or that wasn't okay that wasn't an okay way to speak to me yeah yeah absolutely just just starting to to it's also it's a big trust issue we live in a world where nobody trusts each other because it's all about bringing each other down i mean we have we live in a society of of bullies basically we we are big worried about the bullying in school but that's just a reflection of what the rest of society does i mean look at university you're bullied there you go to your job you're bullied there of course it's done in a more sophisticated way because we are grown-ups and we know how to play by the rules to not stand out so the kids do it more um more roughly or more yeah less sophisticated so it stands more out how how they do it so this is basically to create a space and say, okay, you don't have to be hard um, if you express how you feel. It's not always easy because, I mean, if a boy expresses how he feels, he's really put down as being gay or as being a, a girl or whatever. But it was about um, also not about kind of giving them rules or telling them what to do because every Every teenager or every person expresses also differently. So it was more giving them a space so everybody could stay in their own expression. So um, they didn't have to stand up and talk all about their feelings. Everybody did it in their way. And we also use loads of um, body awareness techniques um, where they can get into expression. For example, I offered them a gentle breath meditation, which I learned on a course I had taken um, by myself and which was very supportive to me um, to bring me back to myself. And um, this feeling of breathing my own breath was um, a very important experience for me. Um, Yeah, how I could always come back to myself and um, how the world would really look then differently. So I wasn't taken out of myself. It it put me in a position of being able to observe more and not absorb all what was going on. So that was, for example, one technique we, we applied with them. And some of the teenagers responded beautifully to it and they loved it. They even did it then at home. And we talked to them, look, if you're getting... If you're having an, an exam and you get really nervous, just before starting it, do one minute the gentle breath meditation and you connect to yourself and everything what you have to write is there because what, what they experience, for example, is that they get so into nervous tension that they their head is empty and they don't know anything. And um, also with um, other aspects of fights going on in schools, like say, like we we um, showed them that by breathing your own breath, which is basically this gentle breath meditation, um, showing you it's just a way of connecting very beautifully to your body, and then the and then you act from there, and that makes a massive difference. Others couldn't deal at all with the meditation because it's also very confronting because you sit there and you really start to feel your body. So you feel the exhaustion, you feel that something hurts, you feel that you're really not feeling well that day, Um, you feel um, whatever, you feel cold or uncomfortable. So we had loads of teenagers really 
fighting it and they didn't want to do it because it was too confronting to them. But then instead of putting them down for not being able to do it, we just talked about it. Um, what was coming up with this? And we gave them space. There was also discipline involved and I clearly um, communicated them. So if you feel uncomfortable of not doing it, you don't have to do it, but you also cannot interrupt others doing it. So there were also this part of responsibility for the others coming in. And then we introduced um, a very beautiful um, <clears throat> um, other body awareness technique, which is called true movement, which I'm, I learned, which was, um, it comes from Australia, actually. And um, it was, um, it was um, presented by um, Curtis Benhayen and I, um, learned um, with him and uh, his sister Natalie behind she they introduced it together I learned it for a couple of um, years I think and uh, it was an amazing experience for me how I um, started to express differently from my body and we introduced the true movement in school and we were, it was really funny because we were expecting only girls to come because it was a free workshop the first time we introduced it. And um, so when, when the teenagers came, uh, came to the first workshop, they were only coming the, what we call the tough guys, like kind of the hard guys, all the ones who are really troublemaker and um, interrupt every class, are very violent, are very often ex expulsed from, from school. And they came out and um, wanted to do this workshop with, with um, us, the, my um, work partner and I, who we are doing it. And it was amazing because it showed us, first of all, that those teenagers, they didn't really know, they knew it was something about dancing but they, first of all, they came because they knew us and they came to meet us, which showed me how, how deeply we build a connection with them. And then it was so beautiful to watch with them how through the dance movements, they really settled into their bodies and that started then to be their way to connect to their bodies because through the movement, um, they were... It's like kind of if you are in this body and you're used to be in constant motion and pushing others and always getting attention from being in constant motion and really having, having difficulties to hold your body still, this, this um, kind of aerobic dance, it's different movements. It's just a dance aerobic style, how it goes with really fun and um fun music with with like kind of faster songs and slower songs it's really it's really great um they could really um it made that even though they were in movement but this this movement made them stop within themselves and they started to get into harmony not only with themselves but also with the group so it created also a um a wonderful um coming together of the group it's so important that um, that we also um, get a focus on what is needed for all the different students and not put them all in the same 
And um, because this is what school basically does, it's like kind of we teach this and you have to do it this way and this is how it goes. So that we make it about connection first and then we look at how is everybody expressing and what is needed for each and just, um, yeah, um, pick them up or, yeah, yeah, pick them up and really or meet them what what is what what they need and and always walk together with them from there yes i love that distinction that you just made there it's meeting them for them and appreciating that they're going to connect to themselves in different ways and what works for one child like the gentle breath meditation doesn't work for another because their body is is set up in a different way it's lived a different life and and yet they were very willing to keep going down that path with you which is fascinating and through movement that's how they found that connection to their body which is what i see so much with with dance um groups that you know might be slightly more um uh conventional in terms of you know their hip hop or but they're actually, it's the connection with each other they're looking for and the connection with their body. But this true movement, that's a thats a, a movement that is a therapeutic movement, isn't it? Yeah, it's, I mean, what with dance is, and I have um, in the community centre community center where I work here in Barcelona, there is um, loads of dance offered, which you, you just say the hip hop or the um, break dance or different kinds of, of dance and youth love it but if you look at it it's um it's always about performance and i know loads of teenagers they don't want to go to the class because they don't perform as well as the others do or then it's all about also competition they make this competition who comes up with the best dance um who has the best body movements and stuff and it's something which is kind of, um, yeah, it's it's this typical way of um, uh, competing with each other and getting into a performance. And I feel always, and that's my experience with the, with the, with working with teenagers, the performance pressure in life is massive all the time. And um, I mean, it's about we have to perform about who's the the be- most beauties, then who is the best in this who um, dresses the best, who dances the best, um, who is the most funniest, who writes. The, so it's all about this. Yeah. So um, yeah. the the performance pressure is so high. So what the difference is with true movement, it is not about performance. It's just about being you. So we yes, we do certain movements and they are not all easy. I struggled with some too, and I'm still, but this is also the fun of it because I'm not even expect to be perfect there. I sometimes get it wrong and we just all laugh and we say, okay, come on, let's start again. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not even there as the one, oh, I'm, I'm your dance teacher here and I have to be perfect. Me, I sometimes get, get out of tune or I, I do the wrong movement or whatever. And um, then I'm even corrected by the students and then it's just, yeah, it's just this playfulness um, of um, doing the movements, but it's it's about how do I feel with this movement? And really, I mean, it's even kind of we start and it's even feeling your feet on the ground before you start dancing. And then we start the first steps 
and it's just feeling your feet and then really feeling how am I in my body. And it's it's not about looking how the others do. It's just about, yeah, being with yourself and um, enjoying it. So that's that's a very important aspect of it, just having fun with it and taking this um, the competition out of it and the performance. Now, the other thing I would say, Rachel, is what you're offering them is a reflection of a different adult than they're used to seeing. Because what I'm hearing you saying is that one, you're not judging, two, you're meeting them for who they are, and three, you're giving them a way to connect to their body that disengages from the competition um, of life. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very um, important aspect. And we start now to work with the teachers too, because what's also very important is that um, that we bring this way of connecting to them into schools with with the teachers. So um, that, that's that's the most important thing because um, it's not about us coming from the outside and supporting them in, in this. It's about um, really um, supporting schools to connect differently with them and make it first about the the students and not about the learnings because I mean there is so much um, going on in, how, in in terms of how to improve the education system and it's failing all around and the education system is mostly failing on teachers because they're all burned out and they're really in trouble and they really lose their passion for, for teaching because it's so hard to do it and it's all about performance we again and with performance they're very strongly so um yeah we are really looking forward to um we we are starting this month to work with the teachers and um support them in their way of caring for themselves and um, establishing a more supportive environment for themselves so that they have the possibility also to connect more with the students and um, meet them. Yeah, because it's all about meeting them. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Rachel. That's just a mine of information there that you've just offered our listeners. Thank you. I look forward to sharing more on all of those things in future weeks to come, but particularly lovely that you um, have a great care for the teachers to support the teachers who are working with the students and and to really appreciate what they're what they're wanting to do, but they physically can't do it all. They can't tick all of the boxes. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, for now, how this education system is set up, it is very difficult because it's all about performance. We started um, to work with the teachers here in in Barcelona and it wasn't easy to get into contact with them because the teachers were very resistant and um, it was always all about the students and that the students were not performing well. And um, I I found it um, difficult to find kind of, you know, like kind of the entry point of how to connect them with the teachers. And then I got to know a group um, which is called Teachers Are Gold. And that's that's an, an association, I think, or an organization of different teachers in Australia 
who are really supporting the teaching profession. And that was really supportive to um, to get into contact with them. And, and I joined their, their network or their association. And I ha- I'm having regular meetings with them. And I learned so much about... Um, yeah, all the aspects of the teaching professions and what is really missing there. And I can feel now here with my work with teachers, I developed a much bigger understanding for teachers. And um, because before I, I was, I have to admit, I was pretty judgmental also with the teachers because they were so, so disconnected and so disinterested in the, in the, in the students. And now I really develop the understanding of how they give up on, on, on teaching because there is this massive amount of work they have to deal with. And it's mostly, mostly is paperwork and organizing classes. And it's all about performance, performance, performance on the teacher side. And then they're also re- responsible for the performance of the students. So... What I learned with Teachers are Gold is really also going back to basics with the teachers and supporting them in just establishing a more supportive and self-caring rhythm um, in their daily life. So from there, they create the space to truly connect with their, with their students. So what we offer now is, um, is to the teachers, and they... Actually, last year they asked me to, when we did the meditation, the gentle breath meditation with the schools, with the students, they asked me um, more in a in a, um, a humorous way and said, oh, we could need this too. Why don't you do meditation with us? And it wasn't really, they weren't really asking it, but I could feel that they were open to it. And then through all what I learned now, and um, yeah, I... I also started to connect more with the teachers. So now, yeah, and now they're open and now it's time and be going to connect with them. And I feel that's, that's the key um, because they are the role models of the students as well as the rest of society and um, their parents are. But, I mean, we all remember this, this one teacher. I mean, I also had this one teacher in school who really inspired me. And um, I feel that... Um, that through my connection with the students, I am that person at the school because when I come, classes from two or three years ago who I'm not doing workshops anymore with, when they see me in school, they immediately run up to me and they know my name, they talk to me and they tell me how they feel and what's going on. So I can really um, feel that, yeah, that I made a connection there and that's what I feel is so important every school so um we are we are very very happy about um being in connection with the teachers now and really um supporting them to yeah to 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 create an environment for them through being more self-caring so that they really can um connect more with the with the students and claim also that teaching is not all about performance Thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you, Lucy. That was great talking to you. Thank you. 
Indeed, you are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and Stay in the Loop with Lucy. Welcome back. Today, we are celebrating Youth Week and talking about the foundations that we lay in uh, when we're young that can affect us when we're old or older or can affect us all the way through our lives. The interview with Rachel Andras that you heard just a little bit earlier um, our, our social educator from Spain was so relevant in what it delivered is the behavior we're seeing indicative of a one-size-fits-all approach or does not respecting that each of us have a different experience that gets us to where we are have something to do with the, the programs and, um, and support models that we need to put in place. Have we lost the connection with our bodies in favour of the performance and the ticking boxes in order to get recognition and acceptance in life? And, and if so, what harm does that do in the long term? It really is worth considering when we see how um, out of control the rates for illness and disease are and how unhappy people are when you scratch below the surface. Interestingly, this morning, I see that um, out of Geneva and the World Health Organization, depression is the leading cause of illness and disability worldwide. Um, so according to the latest estimates from WHO, more than 300 million people are now living with depression, an increase of more than 18% between 2005 and 2015. Now, that is something that we will cover on our World Health Day show next week, so I won't go on more about that now, but just worth considering all the things we talk about in today's show in that context. Now, coming up just after these next What's Ons, I have an interview with Simone Eisman, who is going to talk to us about hoarding and the support that's available through um, a course at Lifeline, um, Harbour to Hawkesbury. Now, it's part one of two um, programs they run through there. But um, first of all, before I jump ahead, let me tell you about some of the uh, events that we've got coming up in the Hornsby and Kuringai area for Youth Week. Um, the Hornsby and Kuringai Youth Mental Health Forum is running at Macquarie University on two, on Tuesday. Now, it's a capacity, so I'm sorry I'm telling you something that's a capacity, but, you know, I have to tell you about it because it's amazing. It's an amazing event. Uh, Matt Keane is, is one of the sponsors, and he is going to be talking at the start of the event to open it. Um, the teams from Kuringai um, Youth Development Services, Kids and Mission Australia, along with the youth team at Kuringai Council, have led the planning team of a number of uh, organisations, including Mind Street Work, um, to be able to bring this event to you and working in collaboration with Macquarie University. I'll give a short review of it next week, but um, yeah, just keep an eye on social media on Tuesday. You may see some snippets from the day. There are loads of barbecues running in the area all week. And on Friday, um, Hornsby Council will be running a youth zone in Hornsby Mall. That's the 7th of April from 12 until 4 p.m. Now, you can have a look on their website for details. Um, I'll put the link on the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website afterwards. But it's uh, www.hornsby.nsw.gov.au and you just look on the uh, media releases tab. There'll be loads of stalls, performances, art, mocktails and of course Streetwork will be there telling you all about some of their programmes that they've got coming up. Kuringai um, Council have Discability on Friday in St Ives from 6.30 to 9.30 with an ugly sweater dance um, for the young people between 12 and 24 with special needs. That's very cool. So have a look at, for that on the kmc.nsw.gov.au youth events um, 
for uh, youth events and works for the holidays. I'll put that link up as well. Hot on the heels of Youth Week, we've got school holidays and information about what's available is on both of those uh, websites as well. Streetwork have got a body awareness program that they're running, which is very appropriate after that um, interview with Rachel Andras. It's going to be run at Gordon Youth Centre, which is 799 Pacific Highway. It's free of charge. First workshop is about recognising the signs of stress um, and what your body feels like and practical tools for uh, dealing with that. And the second workshop is about building that awareness in your body. Um, we've got some movement. We've got some yoga. We just actually, it's going to be great fun. You can do one or both and both of them are free. And could, uh, kids have a, a senior study stress buster program as well uh, on the 11th of April between 10 and 2 at their Linfield Center. So, um, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited, so I'm not going to hold off any longer. I have got Simone Eisman in the studio with me, and we're going to... Um, let me actually introduce her first. Welcome, Simone. Thanks, Lucy. Lovely to be here. Now, Simone works as a psychologist and manages uh, at Lifeline Harbour Talks through, but also manages the clinical services team, which just sounds like a very big job. Um, you you run two of the programs there. One of them is the the hoarding disorder support. So you have, perhaps you could tell us about hoarding and um, why it's a disorder, who it affects, and then we might sort of delve into some of the courses that you, you run. Mm, sure. So Lucy, it's a relatively new mental health disorder. So it only appeared in uh, May 2013 when they revised the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that psychiatrists use to diagnose mental health and mm. it appeared for the first time as a new disorder. Yeah. And that was because over the last 20 years there's been a body of research um, building up suggesting that it is a standalone disorder. Yeah. Previously references to hoarding were part of obsessive compulsive disorder but as the research evidence built, we saw that it was actually a disorder that stood on its own. Um, and it's really the, the essence of hoarding disorder is about difficulty letting go and discarding stuff. And when you have that difficulty, you've got a, a tendency to want to save and hang on to things. But the more that you do that, the more clutter starts to build in your home. Mm. And the more difficult it is to live in your home and also to function in the world and have relationships with other people. And that's really where the distress and disability comes from hoarding disorder. I can totally see what you're saying. And you, you gave us a really good build up to how it actually affects life, mm. you know, where it starts as a... An emotional not and not really coping with something, mm. but not being able to reach out for the support that was needed, and then finding that, as you say, you 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 hold on because you can't let go. But mm. the danger with that holding on is that it starts impacting on not just yourself, but your family, mm. perhaps your neighbours, if that mm -hmm. hoarding continues into the into the um, surrounding space, and then of course your council and your your physical and your mental health because there's a danger of cutting yourself or mm. injuring yourself mm -hmm. with the clutter that's around. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a lot of people who, who 
come to us seeking treatment understand that having so much stuff is impacting on their life and how they function but they are they really don't know what to do or how, how to actually let go and discard stuff because that is so distressing mm. Now, your new course that you're running mm-hmm. is all about the family and how to support a person or how to care for a person with that disorder. I would guess that the first thing you've got to do is learn how to understand rather than judge it. Is that correct? Absolutely. So that's um, one of the first things that we will cover in our new um, program that will run for family members is just increasing that understanding of um, hoarding disorder. And I guess what's great about running a treatment program for hoarding disorder and a program for carers or supporters is that we can get some of the people who've come through our treatment program to come and talk to the family members and give them that insight into um, why their family member might appear to have no insight or be so so fixed in the way that they are thinking about their stuff. I find that lived experience very valuable. Mm. I have people with lived experience on the show quite a lot because we can talk about it and we can study it and we can understand Mm. it from an educational point Mm. of view. But actually, when it's something that you've lived, you bring a whole depth of wisdom from Mm. your body that that just adds colour, doesn't it, to Mm. the statistics and the education. And therefore, offering what you do feels like it gives a very rounded support to the Mm. people that you're talking to. Yeah, yeah, I think it's going to be uh, I think it's going to be very powerful and ho- and hopefully bring a sense of possibility and hope to the family members who have often struggled for a long time with hoarding disorder and can be probably quite frustrated and impatient with the rate of change or the willingness of their family member to change. Yeah, that change, gosh, that is a word that comes up so often. Um, it's it's really interesting. I think people find change so difficult, mm. don't they? Mm. But often, you, you know, what, what we will find is uh, the family member and the person with hoarding disorder, they're often at very, you know, the complete ends of the continuum. Yes. Um, The person with hoarding disorder is struggling to let go of anything and really distressed at the thought of discarding. And the family member, what they're saying is, you know, what are you going to discard now? What are we going to get uh, rid of? But that's, you can't stop the conversation. Um, So what we're hoping to do is, is just, bring family members a little bit closer to that starting point of where the person with hoarding disorder um, might be because you can't start that conversation with your family member with that question what are we going to get rid of today or why can't we let that put that in the bin Oh, yeah. Do you know what? <laughs> I, I am not a hoarder, but I definitely, um, I definitely grew up in in a house where you know we had artistic piles of magazines <laughs> that my husband apparently now calls hoarding. So um, it's like you're talking to me about something that you know I have now definitely gone through that process. But there is a comfort in knowing that just in case you need it, mm. you have it. 
And yes. I, yeah, and I, uh, yes, we might come back to that. <laughs> We're going to listen to um, Robbie Boyd now with a, um, one of his singles called Brave. And after the break, we're going to come back and talk about maybe the socioeconomic status, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, particular in, in different um, socioeconomic groups or whether this is something that, as I have experienced, we all have somewhere in our little darkest uh, cave. Um, thank you very much, Simone. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. This morning we've been uh, talking about uh, laying foundations that we, because it's the start of Youth Week. Um, but this, the, I, I think this one's quite good and I think that song is a very good example. We have to be brave sometimes about not laying particular foundations. And this one, Hoarding, that I'm talking about with Simone Eisman, who's my guest this morning, um, this is one that we underestimate, don't we? Um, if we look at, we, we were going to say, you know, is this socio socioeconomically related? So does it matter how much money you have, where you were born, where you live? I'm getting the impression that it doesn't. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, we see hoarding disorder across all socioeconomic um, classes. Um, it certainly doesn't, uh, it's not just focused on people who, who might have had poorer upbringings or have less money um, right now. Um, in fact, and that makes, you know, that makes common sense. People think, oh, you're going to be more vulnerable to hoarding disorder if you, you know, if you lived in a poor home as mm. a child. Mm. But there's absolutely no uh, research backing that up. Material deprivation doesn't make you vulnerable to hoarding disorder. Um, there is some research emerging that emotional deprivation as a child would make you vulnerable, but it's got nothing to do with uh, how much money or how much stuff you had growing up or but, even now as an adult. So that leads me so beautifully on to my next question, Simone. It, I, I like that research that, you know, the emotional deprivation can lead, is showing signs, potential signs, which would suggest that the, the, the clutter, you, you might actually store emotional clutter as well mm. so that you know you you find it difficult to let go of those mm. experiences you had for you as a child you're constantly trying to make up for them but you're actually just adding more and more so almost what the original problem was is 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 drowned out by a lot of other problems mm. that come mm. over the top so mm. when people come to you do you find you have to peel back quite a few layers before you can actually start to look at what where the hoarding maybe came from or why this fear of letting go, why mm. it's in there? Mm. Um, w- we do um, try and give people some understanding of where it's, uh, where these beliefs might have come from. Um, but our treatment really focuses on the here and now. Mm. So people's experiences have led to certain beliefs that make it very hard to let go of stuff. Yeah. And those beliefs have become quite uh, rigid and fixed. Um, and they become quite pervasive in the person's uh, life. So our treatment is about changing those beliefs. Um, so we don't focus a lot on where the beliefs came from, but yeah. just accepting that that's how you think right now. Yeah. And if you think right, like that right now, you're not going to be able to let go of much stuff. So trying to make their thinking more flexible. 
Would it be helpful if I gave you an example? Yes, of love how one. Someone yes, <laughs> with hoarding disorder might. Um, so uh, we often find perfectionism is a belief that people with hoarding disorder have, mm. which most people say, well, that's crazy. Their houses are so disorganized and chaotic. How can they be perfectionists? But they are. They have a huge fear of making mistakes. Wow. Um, and so, you know, when you're thinking about letting go of something, your brain starts to scream, but you might need this. That might be important. It might be catastrophic if you let that go. And they start to feel very, very anxious. And so uh, to avoid that anxiety, they just end up keeping the things. Um, also, people with hoarding disorder have uh, feel hugely responsible often for, um, for their item. And they're often very creative and can see uses that perhaps other people haven't seen for that item. And once they can think of a use, feel really really bad to throw it away or discard it and then there's a huge responsibility to find a way to use it or to find someone else who can use it and often that's impossible so it ends up staying in the person's home so it sounds like they don't want to be wasteful either no no they often don't want to be wasteful which is a wonderful quality but we you know, if you take that to the extreme yeah. and you don't waste anything, often that means that your home is very full. Mm-hmm. And and that's the, th- the way people with hoarding disorder are thinking about their stuff is not a bizarre, weird, strange, unique way of thinking. It's a way a lot of us would be thinking. Yes, know. it's just that it's tipped into the extreme. extreme. And it's become too pervasive and it's become too rigid. Um, what a- so we could say the same about stress, that stress mm. is a normal response, mm. but in the extreme and in the chronic condition, in the long-term condition, it, it, that's where it tips our, our mental thoughts into uh, disordered thinking. Mm. Mm. So I came with the picture that someone would be very comfortable with their home in that way and that it's the comfort of having all of that stuff around them that means that they can't let that go. But that's incorrect, isn't it? Um, Well, our experience um, as clinicians has has been that often uh, people are distressed by the amount of stuff that they have in their home. Um, In fact, a quite common response can be someone who actually spends quite a lot of time away from their home so that they can escape some of the clutter and disorder. They often talk about feeling overwhelmed by how much stuff they have, how their stuff is taking over their mind and their life. Um, But on the other hand, feeling very anxious about letting it go. So it's that real ambivalence I can't let go of my stuff, but it's creating a whole lot of problems for me and just being caught in that circle going round and round, feeling very stuck. I can't let go of my stuff, but it's, you know, it's distressing me and it's hard yeah. to be in a home with so much stuff. Now, for someone just joining this conversation now, we could be talking about emotions. Mm-hmm. We could, we, you know, the fact that we're talking about possessions the language is exactly the same. And, and when we hoard our emotions, it affects our bodies. Mm. You know, so we, we have coping behaviors. And of course, 
as regular listeners of this show would know, I'm I'm doing a master's in public health, so everything that I I, I just look at everything and go, oh, okay, and and really focusing on obesity and how we lay those foundations as young children or and as mm. young adults that we then actually can't see as grown adults where they came from because we're so used to those coping mm. mechanisms um, and what you're describing there i could apply equally to food you know that we we as a society we don't just buy a little bit of food we hoard our food in case you know um and uh, personal example might be that my husband tells me often that um, he asks when the next tuna famine is coming or you know when the next uh, tin tomato famine is coming and you know and it, so he'll he'll look him in, in the pantry and he'll or in the cupboard and go you know why why do we need six tins of tuna now it's only six tins i appreciate that others may have a bigger problem than me <laughs> but his his point is you know, you could have bought that, you know, two tins at a time or you could buy what we need as opposed to just in case. But I think there's that that bit where you say there's a fear of not being ready. My fear is that we're going to have seven children come home after school or seven young people as they now are in their late teenage years and not actually have enough food in the house to feed them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> irrational. But what's the difference? Mm. There's no real mm. difference or not having enough chips for when mm. you feel down or chocolate for when you have that emotional you know it doesn't really matter what it is it if it's a a tap just in case your tap breaks or enough magazines just in case you need that mm. article again yeah. or you know um maybe it's bigger items of furniture because it's it's grandma's sofa so you can't get rid of that or it's you know it's it's your mother's bed sheet so you mm. can't get rid of those it doesn't matter what it is for us there's there are things and there are beliefs that we have that influence our behavior mm, aren't there absolutely so uh, and that's what we try and do in our treatment is because hoarding disorder it's the clutters in place because of two very specific behaviors mm. people are not discarding and they often start to acquire a lot more because acquiring um, often brings a lot of pleasure and mm. good feeling. You mm. know, when you find that little, yes. that, that piece of wood and you can imagine this wonderful sculpture that you're going to make and yeah. you bring it home. So, so it can become quite reinforcing, those pleasurable feelings people with hoarding disorder get. There's a thrill. acquiring, yes. Okay. Yes. So Adrenaline we, surge in a way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So when you're not discarding and you're bringing more stuff in, you get a lot of clutter. So we are, we, we, we try and change that behaviour, but we know that behaviour is driven by the way the person is thinking mm. and also their emotional experience. Yes. Discarding gives a thrill. I mean, discarding brings anxiety. Yes. Acquiring feels exciting and thrilling. God, I'm doing a show on, on uh, death and the dying process. I can see that, again, a lot of this applies to that as well. You know, how much do we hold on to so that that passing becomes such a trauma? Um, can we talk specifically about your program? So you've mm. got two distinct programs. Yeah. 
from what I understand, your um, family support program is going to be the first one to run. Is that correct? Yes. So it'll be the first time that we're running it. I actually don't know of any other program in Australia at the moment that is actually um, focused on family members. Uh, the the program we're running has been piloted in the States mm-hmm. um, and so there's some evidence that the, this 10-week program that we will run um, is actually effective in terms of helping family members and yep. helping them to um, then help their loved one with hoarding disorder. But yes, so it's a first for us in, in Lifeline and um, I think it's going to be yeah one of the kind of pioneer programs in Australia in this area as well. I can't imagine being able to do it on your own. I think it's Im- it's so important mm. to have family around you and people around you to help and mm. and understand because when you get overwhelmed by something, it means that you are struggling to do it on your own and you mm. need that support, even if it's to go through the piles or, mm-hmm. you know, to have someone who understands at what point, and I think it's an energy you feel first, at what point they start to get itchy feet that you've gone through two piles of magazines now and that actually is enough for today, you know, to mm. be able to feel that. Mm. And actually, as the carer, to walk away, say, hey, we're not going to do any more today. We'll come back tomorrow. We'll come back in an hour. Let's take a break. Rather than confront it with words all the time. Yes, and 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 hopefully there will be family members who can support their loved one. But we'll also give that family member also permission not to to take mm. responsibility to help that loved one but enable them to seek out yes. help as well. So our program is also focused on that family member and their well-being. Uh, well, how is good. Um, yes. Is important as well. So permission also to perhaps say, no, I'm not the person can, that can help you with yeah. this because I, I don't have the patience right now. I'm kind of yeah. being used up. But there are other people yeah. that can help you and I'll support you to find that help. Just shows, doesn't mm. it? I would be automatically think that I would be the one to, you know. And yeah. yeah, so you do, because you love someone, you want to be the person that can help someone. Mm. But actually, as you say, sometimes the best help and the best love you can offer someone mm. is to say, I'm not the right person mm. for you. And there are services that people who can come and declutter for you and can help you address all of that aren't there i mean paid surf, paid services yeah, as well yeah. as voluntary services do you put them in touch with those too um there are private um resources which we can, can put people in in touch with there are not a lot of community-based services which is unfortunate because um can be quite a long and expensive journey mm. um so that we do put them people in touch with those services but unfortunately at the moment there's quite a big wait list for something like catholic community services yes they're the probably the primary provider around actually going into someone's home and cleaning and i don't think we talked about the statistics when we first started because it went the statistics that i looked at was one to two percent and that was 2015 has that changed now well prevalence statistics suggest uh, and obviously we still need to do a lot more research but that it's somewhere between two to five percent of the population so yeah that's a big change in Mm. two years and Mm. and as you say it's probably if 
you know, that's the people who are presenting for treatment mm. and presenting with a uh, concern, which means that it's actually quite far down the track. Yeah. That's not catching the people who perhaps have it slightly as a managed issue, mm. but it's still an issue. Mm. Very interesting. Um, I guess the the next question would be how what your next program that I think is running in November according to your website which would be for the hoarders themselves or no the person with a hoarding yes. disorder because we don't yes. want to identify them as that it's it's just a disorder that yes. they have yeah so well, that one actually starts at the begin- I can't remember the date myself so August but August 18th, it's, it's August it's it starts and it will uh, run till the end of November uh, we have quite a large waiting list for that program wow. already. Um, so I'd encourage anyone to get in contact as soon as possible to register their interests. And we are considering whether we should be running two programs in August, given the amount of demand there it's is. It's interesting, out there. isn't it? Mm. So yes, August the eighth to the twenty-first of November. There are fifteen sessions on Mondays between eleven a.m. and one p.m. But again. Get in con- contact as soon as you can. And the details for that are on their website, which is um, if you put in www.lifeline2h.org.au and then the Get Help Support Groups, you'll you'll find it as you navigate the very simple website, which is a blessing. It's not the complicated one. You actually do find under the tabs that you think you'll find the information that you're looking for. <laughs> So uh, that's Compulsive Hoarding Treatment Program. And the new one, which starts on the uh, in this month, doesn't it? In yes, April? so it actually starts on the, um, the 10th um, of April. We are hoping to commence, so, so relatively soon in a week's time. Fantastic. That would be great. And what day is that one being held on? That's also on a Monday, 2 to 4 p.m. Okay. Um, and runs for 10 weeks. Okay. So get in touch. Don't wait for um, for that to, to come to you because obviously last minute you'd go on a wait list. If they do have availability, they will fit you in, but it would be better not to leave it to the last minute. You are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy coming to the end of my show today. So I just want to say a very big thank you to Simone for coming in. Thank you, Simone. Pleasure. Lovely to come in. I tell you, it it just makes me want to talk about it more because I just keep thinking about the correlation between, you know, what's going on in your mind, what's going Mm. on in your house, Mm. what's going on in your body... I can see it's a, a paper I'm going to need to, to write <laughs> and some research I'm going to need to do. It's a bigger blog. <laughs> but you, you've, you've educated me and I thank you so much because this show is all about you know, bringing new ideas to, to the listeners of this show and saying, you know, what if? And what, what are people struggling out there and where can they get support? And, and you've done that beautifully. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Lucy. I love talking about hoarding disorder. <laughs> oh, well, maybe we shall expand on that in another show. So I, can, I, I hope that everyone can see that we have the potential to be the change we want to see in the world, regardless of what has happened or is happening in your life. It's always worth remembering that you are and always will be amazing. And the key is to reconnect to that space and learn to build a relationship with your body so you can recognize when your body is trying to tell you something's not quite right and then seek support with the appropriate support service, be that mental or physical health. Look for support in the community. It is there. 
Uh, and I will put links to Lifeline on the website and also um, just let you know the telephone number for um, Lifeline, which is 13 11 14. The podcast for today's show will be available through the Stay in the Loop with Lucy website, hopefully by later this afternoon, and it will also be on SoundCloud. So if you want to get updates and listen to maybe some past shows or future shows, then remember to like either of those pages or even the Stay in the Loop with Lucy Facebook page, and then you will automatically get notified. And links to all of those spaces are accessed through the Triple H homepage um, on our sorry the triple h program page next week's show is looking at world health day and i will have dr maxime schranker with me and dr clayton spencer in the studio who will talk about how doctors are being prepared to work in the field and what they see on the ground we'll look at what is health and if our marker for health has been skewed as time has gone on and medical advancements have perhaps offered us a longer life but uh, not so much with quality. I suspect it will be hard to contain it to uh, 90 minutes of radio. And we'll also touch on those statistics from the WHO about depression being, you know, increasing by more than 18% in the last 10 years, which is uh, very serious. And actually those statistics are two years old now. So I do hope you'll make an appointment to join me next Sunday and listen to the Stay in the Loop with Lucy um, uh, or listen to the Stay in the Loop with Lucy recording on the website. Till next week's show, remember to take a moment to look after you, connect with the amazing people in our community. Be kind, be caring, be loved, be all of you. You've been listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. <laughs>